the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. This is an interview I've been looking forward to since the second I saw the John Dower HBO doc, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. There was one person in there that I hadn't met. Not only had I not met this person, but I had no idea who he was, and none of my friends in the Vortex knew him either. He was introduced to us as Joe's Memory Man, an unfortunate moniker the producers gave to him. Well, lucky for you, I tracked him down. Turns out he's been lurking in the Vortex for over a decade. The uh, OG Drop Zone posters may remember Safe Cracking PLF. That's right, it's him. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Tim Collins. Tim, how did you get into D.B. Cooper? Well, let's see. First, I um, grew up kind of down there, and so I found out about it just by living down there. But that's not how I got into it. What, what area did you grow up in? Uh, I lived in uh, Mount Vista. You know where that is? I do. I lived yeah. in uh, Winlock and Woodland. Okay. So uh, that's a few miles from the uh, search area there. But uh, how, I, how I got into it was when I was living in Seattle, I was... Uh, um, Sorry, I should uh, I should back up here. Uh, so I was a card counter at one point in time. I uh, started card counting in college, and uh, I really got into it. And after college, I stopped doing that. And I had I had converted my garage into a card room and had people over. And I was running like a, a, a you know illegal uh, you know gambling hall kind of sort of thing. And uh, one day, I you know, I would always keep track of like the card counting world. And. Uh, one day I uh, see a post and all it said was D.B. Cooper. And I was like, okay, that's a really weird thing to see on a card counting forum. It so. was a card counting forum. Yep. And the post was D.B. Yeah. Cooper. Uh-huh. Stanford Wong's BJ21. D.B. Cooper, BJ21 free message board, the 3rd of October, 2004. Last night on the Discovery Channel, they had an episode of Unsolved History looking into the mystery involving the amazing D.B. Cooper. The wind-up of it all that a dying man admitted to his wife in 1995 he was Cooper, but had no proof. Having only a 1971 sketch to go by and a picture of this dying man from his later years, the investigators went to Las Vegas to see if facial recognition could resolve this mystery. Having never tried to put a a description sketch in the system before, They did not know if it would work. Among the millions of faces in the database, the sketch identified this man as their top match. They also stated that FRS, I assume facial recognition software, has been greatly improved since 1996 when it first came out. Those who refuse to acknowledge the accuracy of FRS and choose to spread 
their uninformed nonsense to others will never learn. So, yeah, uh, the, the reason for the post uh, and why it would be in a card-counting forum, especially back then, is that uh, FRS was this big threat in the casino because uh, card counters would wear disguises and they would uh, do sorts of things to kind of take the eye off them. Right, and they get kicked out. Right, they can get kicked out. That's, that's It's, it's not illegal, but they right. don't have to let you sit there. Right, not everyone knows that it's, that it's uh, legal to card count. Uh, I've had people tell me it was illegal, but it's... Uh, it's perfectly legal, but yeah, they'll uh, they'll do all sorts of things to you. So yeah, this guy was just saying, look, this FRS stuff is real. A lot of people were saying, uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Well, of course, since then, uh, now it's ubiquitous. Uh, I've I've heard that Facebook can, uh, if you have a picture of yourself in your house and there's a picture of somebody on the wall, Facebook their their algorithms can see the picture on the wall, and even though that person has never had an account, they know who it is. Like that's how good their FRS is. Oh yeah, it's it's it, it blows you away. So anyway, I I saw this and was like, really, this is insane. There is actually, uh, I was surprised that first of all, back then I didn't know that there was suspects. You know, I didn't know there was that many suspects. I didn't know that there was any sort of development, any controversy, any debate. I didn't know there was any of this stuff. So I just saw this and was like, really, there's actually something out there, this D.B. Cooper thing may actually ha- have something. So I, I uh, tried to find this episode, and uh, after some work, I actually was able to find it. And I actually have the segment here in question that he just talked about. Hold on. Yeah, here it is. A leading developer of facial recognition software, one of the newest tools in security and law enforcement. Hi. Hey, you must be Jonas. Yes, Jeff Troy. Jonas. Troy, good to meet you. I'm just uh, checking some of this stuff out here. Of course, I have no idea what I'm looking at. You got to tell me, what is it? This facial recognition. The the software that we're going to show you today is stuff that we built for the gaming industry in 1996, and it's used by the surveillance rooms when they have a subject that they're very interested in. It allows them to zoom in on that subject and compare their face to a list of thousands of faces. Cool. Well, we got a guy of particular interest, DB Cooper. Yeah. We have a sketch. Today's gonna to be the first time we've seen in our lab what we can do with a sketch. So we're just as curious as you about what's gonna happen with D.B. Cooper. All right, well, let's get started. I wanna yeah. see this. So the technique that's used by the Identic software is called local feature analysis. It's using this part of the face. It's starting with the center of the eyes and it's taking various nodal points and angles between those points. And that's the portion of your face that's the most robust mm-hmm. to changes. If you grow a beard, that's outside of that range. Right, it's all in the eyes. For the facial recognition test, our team will compare the FBI's composite sketch to photos of Dwayne Weber and two other men once suspected of being D.B. Cooper. We have a composite sketch and three photos of guys who piqued investigators' interest at the time. When we throw them in there, what do you think is going to happen? You know, I have no idea what's going to happen. This would be the first time in this lab that we've taken a picture, a sketch of somebody, and compared it to suspect pictures. So we're just as curious as you guys. So while I'm searching, the thing to remember here is that in 1971, there was no technology like this that existed. In 1996, when we first implemented this for the gaming industry, the technology was fair. Today, that technology is even better. And here's the results. Let's see here. We look in this, there's Dwayne Weber. Out of the top 10 people that have come back out of these thousands of pictures, Dwayne Weber has matched number one of wow. the three suspects. 
since he's the first out of all three of the FBI suspects, one would certainly focus more attention on him yeah. when solely looking at, at the facial recognition side of things. Amazing. Our facial recognition test indicates that Dwayne Weber is a remarkable match to the composite sketch of D.B. Cooper, but it is not proof. Yeah, I, I've never seen that before. And I, I like the idea that uh, facial recognition software was so cutting edge in 1996. That's uh, a little yeah. bit funny. Yeah. Because 1996 now is over 20 years ago. <laughs> well, and that's when they first came out with it. But yeah, so uh, the card counters would um, were trying to thwart it. Uh, back then and there were people who were saying look it's a legit threat and and you know what are we going to do about this and that was the whole gist of that guy's post it wasn't so much about db cooper it was more about hey these casinos are are onto us and what are we going to do about it kind of kind of kind of thing but it sent you into the db cooper yeah sadly sadly i'm not sure i say sadly because i'm not sure if it's uh i haven't quite decided if it's a i kind of have a love hate thing going on with uh I definitely get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's t it's taken a lot, but this has been quite the quite the journey. Um, it's been kind of like a, a, a hero's quest of sorts. And it's a funny thing about a hero's quest is that you know while you're in a quest, ultimately what you're going to find is yourself. And so uh, that's kind of where I, I'm at in this whole stage is kind of finding myself, uh, and not really sure where 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 it's all going to lead or or finish out or whatever. But uh, anyway. So that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, from there, uh, oh, there was one other segment on here I wanted to show you, how they concluded the show. So I'm like, okay, seems compelling, right? This, you know, the post said there was millions of, of people in the database. There's only, uh, uh, I don't know, I think three or 5,000 or something. There's a few thousand, but, but still, a guy who says he did it, it winds up being the, the, top, the top match, right? So that's, I thought, well, geez, that's pretty compelling. Um, you know, what's the story? And that was really my question. What was the story? What what happened? And that kind of sent me on this thing. But here is where we begin. Certainly not where we and end. And this is the end of that same episode. Yeah, this is the end of the episode. According to Joe, Dwayne told her that he had buried the money in the woods, but he had forgotten the exact location. Is it possible that a small fortune in $20 bills is still buried somewhere in the Pacific Northwest? We may never know. Anyway, they go Okay, on. now tell yeah. me that you got super curious about finding the money buried in the woods. <laughs> so that, it's not so much about finding the money for me as much as uh, like, what the hell happened? Are you serious? Like the guy buried the money and couldn't find it? That's it? That's the story? <laughs> so uh, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, and I start, well, okay, so then how did the money get on the river? Because uh, I know they found some money on the river, so how did that happen? And I had just too many things I was I was curious about at this point, and I said, "All right, we've got to go uh, try to get to the source." So I, I looked her up and contacted her, and that was your first move. I want to talk to Joe Weber. Well, uh, maybe the first move was uh, a little googling or whatever, and I read some of her post, uh, read a few posts of hers, and was able to on one of one of the sites she literally had her email address here's her username and then her email address like right under it publicly and i thought no one's that stupid no one's gonna <laughs> no one's gonna do that so I, I thought okay this is uh someone spoofing so I, I i did a search on that email address and i came up with uh an agent at exit realty in florida and i looked up an ad that had the agent in 
exploring it. I'm like, that's the same woman in the show. I mean, it's clearly her. So she, I guess if there is someone silly enough to put their email, their real email address in a public forum, uh, okay. So that's how I got a hold of her. And she's very skeptical of me at first. And, uh, it, and this is again, 2004, 2005. Yeah. 2004. It was about two weeks before I proposed to my wife. And so one of the things I did, I don't know if you want to say I won her over, but, uh, uh, I was talking to her about my plans to propose and that we were going to uh, do this at the top of the space needle. And of course she had her own uh, experience with Dwayne at the top of the space needle. So she had told me all about it and it, it uh, was kind of this weird ever since, ever since that night, I'd say I'm up there getting ready to propose. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm wondering if, D.B. Cooper was actually here in the gift shop buying stuff. Cause she's telling me like he bought this for her and all this. And they went up to the top. So sadly, like this whole thing's been haunting me ever, <laughs> ever since <laughs> like that. And, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, so I shared pictures. Uh, I've shared pictures with Joe the next day, how to go. And I think she saw that I was just this young guy at the time, I guess was just, uh, um, more accepting maybe. Did you ever post on the Drop Zone or the D.B. Yeah. Cooper forum? So uh, um, I am actually known on the Drop Zone. Uh, I'm actually mentioned in that book. Um, my username. And the only reason I started posting in the Drop Zone was because uh, Carr was there. So I would have never, ever, ever posted. I just have no interest in engaging in this stuff publicly. Um, but I posted because I just, the opportunity to have an agent on the case interacting with you in real time was just too uh, compelling. Definitely. So my username is safe cracking PLF. You're safe cracking PLF. Yes, okay. Yes. It's yes. nice to meet you. I will. Yeah. When um, the HBO doc premiered, I, I told you this story already, but it's like, okay, there's Bruce Smith. There's the Foremans. There's Joe Weber. I've had them on my show. He was on my show. I know who that is. And then it said, Joe's memory man and I was like I said to my wife who is that guy and <laughs> why do I not know who he is that's I mean I've been in this community for quite a long time I you know I know who sure you know all everyone the is yeah and you know to place. see you in that documentary yeah where'd this guy come from where yeah. is this guy who is he and why why don't I know him yeah well no one had seen me in, in nine years since I had done a YouTube series uh, where I was talking about various elements of the case or whatever, and I quite verbose, uh, not my proudest work, but uh, <laughs> but I did put it up. Uh, anyhow, uh, it's funny that uh, John Dower chose to use the memory man. He really go went with that pitch. I got to tell you sort of what was happening at the time. Now I was I was traveling. I was in Seattle, and I and Joe's uh, brother just died. The guy was swimming and just died in the pool right there in the pool, doing laps. And probably about, I don't know, two, three days later, she tells me these people from Britain are coming over and want to do a documentary. She's panicked because she knows her memory is starting to, to go at this point. She's like, oh, my, I, I just I don't trust myself to do this. And she's, she's an old woman who, uh, I'll put it this way, as many times, I can't count how many times I offered to go out there and help her with uh, trying to present her um uh, trying to present herself, I, I, I should say, to people. And 
Every time I offered to come out and help her, she would rebuff, just refuse. No, I'm not going to live that much longer. And it's just the stress. I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, some people happen. I don't know if it's the age. I don't know. It's the personality, but uh, no matter what I tried, she just would not, she would not take me up on the offer. So John Dower comes along and she's now panicked. She wants to do, she wants to do the interview. Right. But she doesn't trust herself to do the interview. And she's feeling overwhelmed. And I can understand that because, I mean, just putting together a few uh, clips and audio clips and stuff for you, it's like, okay, it takes time. And she's old and she's got, uh, I don't know, six, seven suitcases full of random stuff and it's scattered everywhere. And so she's feeling overwhelmed. And uh, she says, okay, well, she tells John, I'll do it, but I have to have uh, this guy here to help me do the interview. I know I don't trust my memory. So, so her pitch to him was that I was the, the, this person to help her with her memory. <laughs> and, uh, I, I feel like, uh, and he, he really wanted to go at that angle in our interviews and he didn't throw any of it into the, um, cause I, I really wasn't, I said, listen, John, I got to use notes just as much as the next guy. Uh, I've, like I said to you, I've forgotten more about this than an emphasis on forgotten. I mean, it's, I try not to remember a lot of stuff. I, I <laughs> try to get it out of my head, out of my head as much as I can, but uh, yeah, he just went with it, the memory man. So now I'm like, yeah, the memory man on there. I think it's silly, but that's that's the kind of way he chose to pitch it to the audience. I'm definitely more than just somebody who was there for memory support because eh, Joe is a complicated person. Um, have you have you ever talked to her? Yeah, I spoke with her a couple of times um, two years ago now, maybe two or three years ago. Okay. So uh, the- when the podcast first started, I thought, you know, she's one of the people uh-huh. that I have to have on the show. And the, uh, the first time I spoke to her, it ended up being for, you know, like two hours. Okay. And when she called, I had it ready to record the phone call and we started talking and I said, Hey, is it okay if I record this? And she said, no. Uh-huh. And so I, t- I turned it off and then we spoke, like I said, for like two hours. And at the very end of it, she said, you know what? It's fine if you record this. And I thought, I, yeah, I turned it off. I should have at least yeah, let yeah, it go. Uh-huh. Yeah. But um, I spoke to her maybe one or two more times, but I, I thought it wouldn't be kind for me to, to, right. pu- to put her on the podcast. Because uh-huh. she's not, she, she's an old gal and isn't as, as sharp as she used to be. And so I, I think it would just come off cruel. Yeah. To put her on the yeah. show. And when yeah. I saw her on the HBO thing, I thought, okay, that, that must have, t- they must have spent a long time. With oh, her to get well, that out I, I tell you what, I tell you what, uh, I mean, even what they showed, I mean, she was the, the part where they, uh, where I jumped in, where I jumped in, I, I thought for sure they're not going to put that, <laughs> they're not going to put this. I tried so hard not to, not to, uh, step in. She was butchering her story so bad, um, that I just, I think it was just the stress because here's the thing, even though even though she knew she was losing her memory and I knew she was losing her memory because I would be on the phone with her and leading up to when she invited me out finally. And she would forget she's on the phone with me. So we're in the middle of conversation and she forgets I'm the one she's talking to. And how do I know? Because she would start literally talking about me on the phone and I mean, not that she was saying anything bad. It was all good stuff, but, but tells me right there. I mean, she, her short term memory was, was shot. But if I started asking her questions about uh, elements of her story she could always go back and, and tell me the story. So it was, it was still fairly intact. And that day, those, those couple days down there in Florida, I don't know, I'd, I think maybe the stress, lack of sleep, the worry or something, I don't know, but it just, it wasn't, it wasn't working very well. 
and I felt really bad that they were going to have to edit all this. <laughs> I I have audio tape of like the whole things, but I haven't uh, sat through and listened to it. But yeah, I tried to. Joe, you're talking about. Well, I'd have to show you the clip, but yeah, she's uh, she's talking about adjusting his pillow. That's that's four days after the confession. Can we back up and walk walk them through one of the times? One of the better times that uh, she did for me, let's see. I'll walk through sort of the confession a little bit. So it was March 5th, 1995 was the day that um, he was in real bad shape. Uh, He was very, very sick. I mean, his kidneys were failing. And he was just continually bleeding from his genitals. And uh, it was nonstop. So it's, it was not uncommon for him to, you know, piss blood or whatever, but this was like nonstop. So given the fact that he was sick, he had a broken arm, his left arm was broken. Um, and Joe finally had a, a, a point in the weekend on a Sunday morning. She said, all right, we're going to take you in. And this is where we're going to queue up. So she is describing she is describing how he's leaning up against, the, it's, the, the clip starts with um, she's describing how he's leaning up against the the wall and the bar of their house. So he's like in the corner in the in the nestled in between, just like letting the letting the wall and the bar support his weight as she comes over to help him get dressed. Bar and the wall, wall on one side and the bar kitchen bar on the other. Okay, all right. And uh, so I get his long johns on him, you know, and get his sweatpants on him. And in the process of my doing that, I asked him, I said, when are you ever going to tell me how you messed that leg up? Because when I'd asked him before, he'd never tell me. I'll tell you about it someday. So it's not the first time you asked. No, it's not the first time asked, but that's the first time he ever gave me an answer. It was always, I'll tell you about it someday. I just figured, oh yeah, I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do, you know. Right. And he says, I got a jumping out of a plane. I'm like, you jump out of a plane? Come on, give me a break. Here I am, he's bleeding. I'm on my squatting down, trying to get him dressed. And I literally start laughing at the poor man. <laughs> That's a good, I mean, I'm little. I'm sitting down on the ground trying to get his log job. And he, I got a jump out. I literally was laughing so hard that I went down on my butt. <laughs> And I'm trying to get him ready to go to the hospital. Right. And, uh, but at any rate, that passed very quickly. I got him to the hospital, you know. He was- they proceed to leave the house, and he, uh, he, tells, he tells the house goodbye. And she says, oh, you're going to be back. And, of course, he never was. He knew. He knew it was his time. He knew what, uh, he had his own ideas. He probably could have come back if he really, really wanted to. Um, but his life was very miserable. Being up in the middle of the night, puking and just oh god, he couldn't sleep. Like I said, his arm was broken. He was frail. Um, it's interesting. The casting in that John Dower film was just amazing. Uh, the guy they had to play Dwayne Weber in the hospital, except for the character in the hospital bed, is like what Dwayne looked like when he was vibrant and and healthy. Uh, when he was in the hospital, he was withered and just like emaciated and uh, just not in good shape. But uh, but still, I it was very I was like wow the casting director did a, a fabulous job on that so they get to uh, they get to the hospital and he spends about a week 
kind of trying to rehab. So normally when you're on dialysis, it's like two times a week or whatever, but now they they got him going every day and they're going to try to get him so he's not feeling sick. After about a week of this, he just, you know, I think he just, like, I see the writing on the wall. This isn't, uh, it's not helping. You know, screw it. And uh, she comes walking in on a Thursday. Um, it's the day this, the confession happened. So th- I believe it was a Thursday, Thursday, uh, March 16th, 1995. She comes walking in midday and she walks in and there's a doctor there and it's just awkward silence going on. And he says, Joe, bring me my briefcase. Cause he had told her you get, you're keeping that briefcase with you everywhere. You're not, it's not to leave your side. So she, she brings it in, he pops it open and he hands the doctor his living will and starts to berate the doctor. Cause basically they were, they were trying to assess his uh, mental capacity to make a decision such as going off a dial. So he was refusing to go. It's like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm done doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm like, well, do you know what that means? Because if you go off dialysis, that's not exactly going to be a pleasant uh, experience. Okay. Not going to be a fun death. <laughs> and so they are trying to assess his uh, mental capacity. And so he shows him the living will. So she described after everyone leaves the room, they've told her that based on their experience, he's got about five days to live. And I believe he wound up living 12 days. It's funny though, when he went on dialysis, and that's another thing we'll talk about. Uh, when he first went on dialysis, they gave him five years and that was pretty accurate. And, uh, after they left, he asked me because there was like a, a bin and you couldn't see if someone was in the entryway and there was a curtain between he and this other one. But I had pulled, he says, is there anyone else here? I said, no, because they were not, he had the room to himself. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I thought he was wanting a cigarette because they would allow him to smoke if I would hold the cigarette. And so I was already had the cigarette. He says, no, like this with his hand. So he he waves it like this. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, he says, come here. I want to talk to you. All right. So so here's the bed. Uh, I'm him. And he says, come here. I want to talk to you. And where are you? You. Okay. There's the bed. There's the window to the hospital. Okay. Okay. over here is an alcove. Here is another bed in the curtain. The okay. curtain's here. Okay. I go to this alcove, which, you know, you couldn't see who was in the entryway. But that's, where the, the, door, but that's where the door in and out is? Yeah. I shut the, I made sure the door was shut. And that's a window looking outside? Over to his, on his side, yeah. On this side, there's a window. What's yeah. what's what's out there? Is he, is he the up front high? of the hospital. Is it ground level, or is he up high, or what? No, he could, he... Uh, no, I mean, the, the floor, is it... Is the floor ground level, or are you like? Oh five no, we were up, up on like uh, forgotten we were second or third floor now. Okay, so it's just looking out at the front of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, continue. Um. So he says, "Is there anyone else here?" You know, yeah. first he waves you off. Yeah, and I'm coming. Well, you have to pretend that that you're on the bed. Right. And I'm coming. Uh, you know, with this, and he wait. He said, "You know, I'm back there where right. the other twin bed is." No, he says, come here, I have a secret to tell you. I says, put it in the bed. I said, what? This is closer. Uh-huh. Okay, I was about like this, you know, and he's in the right. bed a little bit higher than that. He says, and uh, I think there was a chair here, and he says, I'm Dan, 
I have a secret to tell you. He says, I have a secret to tell you. I'm Dan Cooper. And he didn't say Dan Cooper. He said, I'm Dan Cooper. I said, what? She said it really slow like. Yeah, Cooper. He cooed it out. Uh -huh. And I said, what? I said, I know that you used another name before, but I never heard of that one. Uh -huh. Then the rest of the conversation is sort of like lost to me because, but not completely. He's, he tried to explain to me who Dan Cooper again was, talked again about jumping out of a plane, the same thing as he said when we were going to the right. hospital. Right. Um, I didn't understand what in the hell he was talking about. I mean, I just had found out that he would die in five days. Right. Okay. I'm still digesting that. Now I'm digesting him telling me, I'm Dan Cooper, and I said, who the hell is that, you know? And, um, and so I was basically patronizing him. Meaning you were, you were saying, listen, everything's okay. Yeah. You're going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, and, and, I, he, and at this point, is he telling you about check the van... Or is that later on? No, that's in the same conversation. All in the same conversation. All in the same conversation. He's trying to explain everything to you, and he's telling you, check the van. Yeah, and whenever he's, uh, that's when he told me to be sure and check the van over real good. He told me where to look in the van, but it's lost. He told you where to look. Okay. okay. It's lost. Yeah. I mean, I you're, lost. You're dealing with so much information. It was the... too much, too fast. Right. Here I am. He's telling me all this. I'm thinking he's totally lost it. Yet he was talking perfectly clear to that doctor and nurse. Right. Just ten minutes before. Right. Ten minutes. If that long. Right. And I, you know, I'm not understanding where this is going. And I didn't pay attention. I should have paid more attention. I didn't. Because it seems so crazy. If I had known who Dan Cooper was... Oh, right. But at the time, you're, I mean, yeah. you're, you're looking back at it now with hindsight, but I'm thinking, at the time, you know, walk me through, I mean, at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I can't remember what all he did say. He did talk about being sure, and I, and I cut him off. I said, I know you hide things in the van. Mm -hmm. So he probably told me exactly where it was. I didn't hear it. Mm -hmm. He didn't say what was in there. He just said, no. "Check it." If he did, I didn't. I didn't hear it. Maybe because I didn't want to hear it, mm -hmm. or or I thought he was crazy. I don't, I don't know what I sudden, thought. All of a sudden, he's talking all this stuff about planes and Dan Cooper and, he and finally, aliens you never heard of. Right after maybe twenty to twenty-five minutes of trying to explain to me what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, he talked about a plane jumping out of a plane. And he, he tried to tell me I didn't want to hear it, I guess. And then finally he said, Oh, fuck! Let it die with his life. And he had this big, big. deep, baritone voice. Mm -hmm. The nurses come busting through that door and, you know, uh, wanted to know what was wrong. They thought I had done something to Ooh, upset right, him. right. But it was, oh, fuck, let it die with me. And they start doping him up. 
So that's what the that's what the John Dower interview should have been like. But <laughs> yes, yes, I definitely agree with that. I'm really impressed by that, Tim. One of the things I find really interesting about Joe and Dwayne is if you would have talked to me about it five years ago, I would have said, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear anything more about Dwayne. Mm -hmm. Joe's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing to that. Mm -hmm. um, I've changed on that in, in the last few years, especially um, the highest in store. I'm, do you know this story? Well, she told me about the highest in store, and I'm trying to figure that out, so you tell me. She posts on the drop zone, I want to say in 2013, okay. about a, the break-in at the highest in store that night, the night of the skyjacking, um, and it potentially being Dwayne and blah, blah, blah. No one even paid attention to it at all um, because it came from Joe. Right. And we have all these FBI files being released now. And boom, there was a break-in at the store the night of the hijacking in the drop zone. And it happened exactly as Joe said it did. How did she know about that before anyone else knew about it? She knows quite a bit of stuff. I'm, uh, I have not gone through those files, by the way. Um, it's just one of those things I refuse to do. So yeah, you're telling, you're telling me, cause that's one of the, the highest in store was one of those things that she started. I did not, I don't remember the 2013 postings that, that would probably change my perspective a little bit. First time I remember her talking about it was, was a little later after that. And, uh, the way she, she was able to describe, she was able to describe it. And I thought, did you, did you look it up on Google? Like how did, you know, I wasn't quite sure. Uh, and she said she had talked to the people that that uh, worked there and owned it. She told me that he took her by there actually on the, on the trip of the, and I don't, the thing with Joe is I, I never know quite uh, what to believe and what not to believe. So I'm confident that, you know, nine, nine out of 10 things she says are going to be, you know, BS. But if you throw the whole thing out, you're going to miss, you're going to miss a lot. And so it's, it's one of those, like you said, uh, you, you would have chalked it up to nothing or whatever. And she's crazy. But, um, I'm not, I have to kind of process the, uh, the heist in store cause I'm not sure what to make of that. I have to, I have to find the file and read it. Well, as, as someone who is just a lurker on the drop zone, her story seemed so malleable and well, yeah, that's part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was trying to weave every little, every little thing was, was every little thing. DB Cooper, every little thing. It's, uh, uh, Paradoia, you know, or whatever, um, where, where it's, uh, um, she sees, uh, patterns where they don't exist, uh, and, and everything's, everything's her husband, everything. Oh, uh, you think Kenny did it? Yeah. You know, he knew a Kenny. They probably did it together. Like, okay, come on. <laughs> this is, this is asinine. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, as my friend said, she's her own worst advocate. She'd advocate for her own, her own interest and yet terrible at it. What made you, I mean, obviously you were into Joe's story from the beginning. I mean, you would travel, well, yeah, to, yeah. To, travel to interview her. What, what sold you on Dwayne Weber? Well, so really where this, where this began, and I showed you where, the, where at the end of, the, end of that clip they talked about he uh, buried the money in a bucket and couldn't find the bucket. That's the way, that's the way it, was, it was phrased. And I just had a real hard problem with that. Um. But at the same time, I thought it's quite compelling that here's a guy who confesses and they run him through 
a database and it just so ha- it just so happens that his face is the best match. It just so happened. I mean, that's just luck, right? So I'm thinking that 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 can't be just pure like coincidence. So what is really going on here? That you know the the curiosity got the cat. So <laughs> so I really started to to chew on this for, for months and months. Like, and then she talked about how uh, they took this sentimental journey, and this is in the uh, uh, U.S. News and World Report um, article. And I think, huh. So here's another coincidence. They take a trip in the months before this money's found, and she has this story about going to the river or whatever. And um, I'm not, I'm not sure what I think about that story in particular. But I, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. I don't know. I, I I'm not one to necessarily disagree. I agree with, with you on that, but yeah. I will interject and say, it's the only, it's the only story with an explanation. Well, that that's that's kind of where I'm going with this. It's like, okay, uh, how'd the money get there? We no one knows. And and I thought, you know, it's interesting. She tells a story about the river, and here's what she would tell me. She says, look, he couldn't find the money. He buried it in a bucket. He, he couldn't find the bucket. He must have buried it on the Columbia River, and a flood dislodged it or something dislodged it. It's construction dislodged it. Something happened, and it floated down the stream, and uh, some of it washed up, and, uh, you know, that's the end of the story. That was, that was her pitch to me. And I, I just thought about that, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought, I, I, that doesn't jive. It doesn't jive. And another thing, you're telling me then that this trip in the months before the money's found is just pure chance, it's pure coincidence? So in other words, her own story to me was undermining her own like uh, uh, her, her own story because she, in her mind, the sentimental journey, which is based on the Doris Day song, by the way, um, was what, what was special about that to her was how he knew the area. He's driving around, no map, pointing stuff out. Hey, we used to do this over there, blah, 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 right? Going around, talking about different stuff. Uh, oh, over there, that's where D.B. Cooper came out of the woods. What? How would you know that? Now, Bruce Smith has a misquote in his book. He says, maybe I was his ground man. That's not, that's not the, you got to get this right. Because Dwayne had a way of being very um, uh, clever, uh, very ambiguous in his wording, uh, very selective. And he says, uh, she says, how, how do you know that? He says, uh, maybe I was the one on the ground. So, which you could take multiple ways. He's not saying uh, maybe I was the one in the air. Maybe I was the one on the plane. He's saying maybe I was the one on the ground. Well, if you stop and think about it, the one on the ground is the one in the air. It is the one on the plane, right? Uh, unless unless you're thinking that it's this uh, tag team duo or something. I don't know. So it's the way he phrases it. What I'm trying to say is that her story was was that it was significant what he was doing there and saying there, but the fact that they're there months before the money is discovered on the river, you know that that must just be pure chance. And I looked at that and said, I don't know if that's pure chance. That I don't know. I don't know what I think about this. You're telling me I start doing these um, uh, mental uh, experiments, like you know thought experiments. Okay, let's say he goes down. He find he finds it. It's all soggy or something, and he. Chucks it in the river, it goes down. All right, so what's, what happens? Okay, so the packs go down. They're going to spread out. The packs are going to spread out. I'm telling you, after they found that money, the people all up and down that Columbia River are looking for stuff. They're all up and down that river. Nothing ever shows up anywhere else except for this one square foot, right? So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not buying this story, Joe. Tell me more. Tell me more. And this is over the course of you know, a span of time. You got to tell me more. Tell me more about this trip. I need to know more about this trip. And the beauty of Joe. So we talked about how she's crazy. and she's The beauty of that, that's actually a feature. 
and not so much a detriment as you would think. Because I'm sitting here like, oh my God, the stuff she's posted online, how am I ever going to clean this up? It's an impossible, impossible task. But from my perspective, because she didn't understand her own uh, narrative to a large extent, uh, it allowed me to kind of sneak in and ask questions about things she wasn't even paying attention to. She wasn't even, wasn't even on her radar. She's trying to, she's busy telling me about, uh, oh, I don't know, CIA stuff. And I'm busy asking about like real pertinent stuff. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. And I know whether he was CIA, I don't, yeah, I, I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I, I think it's, it's probably more far-fetched than uh, reality, but um, you know, who, who knows? But anyway, the point is, if she didn't, if there was something she didn't understand and I would ask her about it and I know she doesn't understand it and she's giving me answers, I trust it way more because she didn't have the opportunity to um, put her own belief system onto her answer. Like she didn't have a chance to convince herself of something that maybe didn't happen or, or uh, paint it in a certain way. If that makes sense. It does. I'm trying to think yeah. of an example here. So, so yeah, I would, I would walk her through, tell me about, Tell me about when you were at the Dows. So this is the other thing in the, in the HBO. They conflated three different, three different stops into one stop. And uh, this is like totally butchered, totally butchered the story. It's, it's fine. I'm not mad about it or anything. It's just aggressive editing. They did a lot of aggressive editing. I gave them sound bites and in the middle of the sound bite, they cut it off, cut it off. You put the first half leading, you know, I, you put the setup in there and then you leave the, anyway. Uh, but I digress. So, uh, yeah, the Dalles was their first stop. They, they, they left. They drove to Salt Lake City. They did a little touring. I can't believe how fast that guy must have driven. Okay. <laughs> um, insane. Insane um, how fast that guy must have driven, uh, which is why he had a CB radio in his car. And his uh, CB handle was the uh, world's largest jock strap. And she just thought that was the most vile thing. Well, in hindsight, she thought, huh, I wonder if he was referring to <laughs> something else <laughs> so anyhow uh anyhow so they, they they do a little sightseeing in, in salt lake city they drive from there all the way to the dows and they did this all in one day and they get to the dows and the next morning he gets up he says i got some business to take care of and he he leaves and it's it's not even the sun's not even up yet so he takes off i don't know five in the morning or something and um he misses checkout time by an hour then another hour now she's on the phone. Now she's on the phone trying to call the highway patrol and see if there's car accidents. She's freaked out. Uh, he said he's going to be back. He's not back. And this is, of course, before cell phones and all that. So it's like, you don't know what you don't know where he went. Did he drive off the bridge of the gods or something? What happened to him? So, uh, <clears throat> so he pulls. He finally pulls up, and he's got these dickies, the dickies overalls on, and he's like, I got to go in the room and wash up real quick. So he goes in there and wash up, and. Uh, it seems like his you know, hands and clothes are a bit uh, dirty, as if he's been, I don't know, doing something. And uh, he just, and then the rest of the, and rest of the, the rest of the journey that you hear about was that day. And uh, let's see, I actually have the timeline. I can give you exact dates on this, uh, which took me years, by the way, to figure out. That was on August 29th. August 29th, 1979 was the day that they, they, he woke up at the Dalles and he kind of, they uh, go through this whole excursion there in the, the, um, east side of Clark County there. And, um, or at least that's what she, that's where she now believes that they were at. At the time I've, I've, I have, you have no idea how much documentation she has uh, or had, uh, 
but I've got recordings of her before she ever went out to the Northwest uh, to try to retrace her steps and some of the, some of the things she was saying then and she's describing. So, so he takes her on this excursion and then they drive up to Seattle and, uh, and, and, and that's that. Now, a couple days later, uh, let's see, they, the next day they toured at the company headquarters, which was at uh, Park Place up there in Seattle. And that was the day, that was the night that they had the dinner at the Space Needle. So they, the two of them went up to the Space Needle on August the 30th. Uh, now, on August 31st, they had a meeting uh, in a separate venue somewhere else. And he says he's going to take a shortcut. And he's driving, he drives all the way down, uh, goes south. And she said, what the hell are we doing out here? She pulls out a map finally and is like, this is not a shortcut for where we're going. Why are we on this big detour? He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. And they're literally behind the SeaTac airport. And he's looking at the fence. He's like, ah, I, the, the fence has changed or something like that. Something to that effect. And she, this is not a shortcut. What are we doing here? And only in hindsight does she. But he, he started telling her about this ice cream shop that was uh, down the street there that his old other wife liked to visit. And uh, I thought that was interesting. Let's see. So then uh, on September the 1st, which was... Saturday. He went missing for who knows. She wakes up. He's not there. She goes around looking for him all day. Uh, she goes to the pool hall that's down the street. Have you seen Dwayne? No, we don't. We haven't seen him. Where is he? And they've got this banquet that night for the awards. It's the last night of the last night of the event in Seattle. Where is he? Is he going to show up? So it's kind of like the Dow's again, all over again. Like she doesn't know where he is. She puts out his Johnny Carson three-piece suit and is kind of waiting for him in the room. Well, he does show up. And when he shows up, he's so elated that she says, oh, my God, you've been drinking all day. That's what you've been doing. You've been drinking all day. He goes, nope. Come here. Smell it. And he's like blowing on her. And I'm like, smell my breath. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, haven't had a single drink. It's like, well, why are you so happy? He doesn't say. He's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to take a picture. He gets, his, he gets his Johnny Carson suit on. And you saw in the, in the HBO documentary uh, where they showed the picture. And she's like, I'm going to take the picture of you. He's like, all right, say, say cheese. He goes, Geronimo, right? Geronimo, it's an interesting thing. As a kid, we used to say that whenever we were going to you know, jump off the playground or whatever. And it, yep. it, uh, the term goes back to uh, World War II. That's what the, the paratroopers would say as they're jumping out of the back of the plane or whatever. So interesting, interesting uh, choice of words. And the, the picture does exist. You can see he's quite elated. He's got his hands open like he's getting ready for a free fall. Is it proof? No, but uh, it's interesting. It's insightful for me. Uh, because what was going on that day and, uh, the conclusion, the conclusion that I reached, not only, not only do we have these problems with how did the money get to, uh, Tina's bar, right? And the more she kept talking, then she tells me about the next day. Okay. So Sunday, tell me about Sunday. We get up and we drive, we're driving back home and we stopped at the red lion. Well, first she says they stopped at the river. And uh, the approximate location she believed they were at was Winter Park. And she says she fell asleep in the car. And when she wakes up, he's kind of coming towards the car. And uh, then they go to the, the Red Lion there at, uh, in Vancouver. And they're going around the parking lot. Or they pull in. They pull in. And he's got this paper sack in the car. And he starts telling her where the, where the concessions uh where the concessions are and where the bathroom is like go in there. There's a food machine. There's some bathrooms in there. He's basically telling her as if he's already been there before. Uh, like, how does he know this? So she goes in and, uh, 
when she comes out, he's out in the back looking at the river. She's like, well, what are you doing out here? Oh, I'm just uh, watching that bag go down the river. She freaks out and um, she goes around and searches all the trash cans in the parking lot and they're all empty. And as I, I believe I said in the documentary, uh, if, if he had, assuming, assuming what I believe to be the case, which is that Saturday when he went missing, I think he went back and he actually could not find the money the first time. And then somehow he came back, gave it another shot, found it and was just, just ecstatic. And sadly though, after being in the ground for eight years or whatever, seven years or whatever, whatever it was, uh, some of this money was damaged and they couldn't, I think it, that's how it got compressed. That's my opinion. I believe that's how it got compressed. It was smashed down in this, uh, a bucket, you know, like a five gallon bucket. Right. So he's got this money that can't, he can't get it apart. So it's like, oh, fuck, fuck it. And puts it in a bag. And instead of chucking it in the trash where probably no one ever looks, he decides to get all, uh, cute and tosses it in the river. <laughs> this is what I believe happened. I, 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 and like you said, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I haven't heard a better explanation and, and I've, tr- I've tried to work it out. If somebody has a better explanation, uh, be my guest. So from that, I established that the money was out on the river somewhere for 161 days, precisely. Now, we're recording this on February 13th. Of course, they're not li- uh, you're not listening to this on February 13th, but uh, do you know what happened on February 13th? No. Okay, so February 13th is the day that the money find was on the front page of every newspaper in America. And uh, I do happen to have that. I happen to have that. Sorry. Any questions? Yeah, because the find was February 8th, right? 10th. 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 Okay. Yeah, I I actually, uh, that's I texted you, uh, like, <laughs> I looked at the clock and was like, oh, yeah, 41st anniversary. That's uh, like within the hour, pretty much. <laughs> That's the thing, man. I'm like swimming in this thing. I can't, I can't let it go. You can either choose to read it on the air or not. But anyway, so there's the, the front page of the Denver Post, which is the newspaper he got. Now she tells me the story of how that, how that happened. Now in the, mean t- in the meantime, in the interim, between the paper sack and this. So he gets home. He gets home in uh, early, early September. There, and I believe he has the ransom money with him. And I believe he hid it in the house somewhere. Then about three weeks later, he starts shopping for a new car. So he buys a new car. Even though he had just got a new car uh, months prior. So he's like, What uh, kind of car was it? It was a Mercury Marquise, 1980. So, uh, Not a great vehicle. Well, yeah, I think he... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was great in 1980. Yeah, yeah, in 1980. But uh, uh, what did he have before that? He had a... Seville, yeah, he had a he had a Seville. Uh, anyway, so who cares what car he had? <laughs> I have pictures of I have pictures of all of them. But anyway, um, she describes how she was making him breakfast, and she went out to the driveway, got the got the paper, and she opens it up. Oh, she they found that guy's money. What what guy's money? Uh, yeah, DB Cooper. What? And she starts to like read the article, and uh, she gets like part way in, and he's. He's asking for asking for if he can have it when she's done or whatever. And uh, at some point in there, he made a comment that the money was worthless. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how that was brought up in the conversation. If it was early, because I mean, pr- pretty quick. As, if you're reading this, you can figure out that it's uh, it was rotting away and decaying. And the pictures, of course, show it. She says he didn't have a chance to see 
this. So he did not know that it was actually worthless. How did he know it was worthless, she says. Um, <clears throat> he left the house. He took the paper with him. She never saw it again. Now, if you're, let's just suppose, entertain the idea that he actually was D.B. Cooper, right? Or whoever D.B. Cooper was that he was alive and he found out that his money was found on, on the Columbia River. You know, what do you do? What's your next move? I would just keep quiet. Okay. Sure, sure. You're going to keep quiet. I think his next move is, all right, let's go check out all the newspapers that we have. And I think he probably went to the store and maybe uh, <laughs> maybe check out the Rocky Mountain News. Okay, so Rocky Mountain News. And you, you're welcome to read this Where to was you. Joe living at the time in 1980? <clears throat> About 40 minutes from you. And uh, Really? Yeah, I, I could take you there if you wanted to drive. Um, <clears throat> It's a, it's, a, it's a special place for me <laughs> because I, I stand outside that house and, <laughs> you know, for your audience who, who, who is not quite as sure as, as I am, um, I sit there and I look at this house and I'm like, you know, I know, I know that for six months that ransom money was in that house. Now, maybe the audience is like, okay, well, I don't know that, but I do. I do. I know that. So it's one of those things that uh, him and I know and no one else knows. Anyway, at the, at the end of the AP article, so the Denver Post picked up the LA Times article and the Rocky Mountain News picked up the uh, AP. And at the very tail of the AP article, I'll let you read that. because That's really the, the crux of it. I really think this, uh, remember this is the day, bef this is uh, before Google. Uh, information was quite scarce. And so he's getting a lot of information off these articles. So go ahead and read that last paragraph there. It's at the bottom. In 1977, just to make sure the hijacker didn't escape prosecution via the statute of limitations, he was indicted on federal charges in absentia. Yeah, it's my belief that that's the first he knows he's fucked. Yes, <laughs> I, w I would yeah. definitely agree with that because... Yeah. That didn't get publicized, really. And, I mean, even uh, people I, who are familiar with the case, I'll say, oh, he, the John Doe indictment. And they're like, what? Right, they don't know that. They don't so, know that. So uh, I've wondered why. Okay, so this is one of the things. Why would you bury money and leave it for so long? Why did you bury the money and leave it in the first place? Like, there's all these questions I have. She's given me so many stories, too, about his car might have been um, at SeaTac, she, that was her first story. I think that's probably true, uh, that his car was parked at SeaTac and he was hoping to uh, parachute out early and then just get to his car and, and drive off. Uh, it didn't work out that way. I don't think he was necessarily planning to jump out where he did, but maybe maybe that was part of the plan. It was certainly, it certainly added to the mystery. It certainly made the, the story what it was. I think if he jumps out in the city, he's screwed. They're going to find him. But... Um, it worked out. It worked out. But now, whether you think it's Dwayne or you think it's someone else, right? Uh, if they're reading that, that's probably, that's likely the first time they know they're screwed. So one of my questions is, why would you leave the money in there for, why would you leave it out there for so long? I think maybe part of that could have been statute of limitations. I'm just going to let that run out. And when I'm safe, I'll go get it. I don't have to worry anymore. They can't, they can't touch me. I think he probably believed that. Maybe he just didn't need to go out there. I don't know. It seems weird that he waited so long. And clearly it cost him something because uh, if I'm right, that money got, comp you know, some of the money got compressed in, 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 the, in the bucket and was, he couldn't get it apart. And so he's just like, oh, screw it. I'm just going to chuck this. That but, makes sense. The money was yeah. sort of already in a state of decay and it's why it didn't spread. 
Uh, yeah, I think I think it was I think it was already compacted. I think the compaction part happened in the bucket for eight years, and uh, the rest of it probably was uh, good. That's my that's my best that's my best. Uh, not all of it was bad. All right. Um, so yeah, that was uh, forty one years ago today, February thirteenth. So when Dwayne gets the money and he says to Joe, "It's it's not it's worthless." The money that he got, do you think he could have spent any of that, or you think that was money was just garbage as well? No, no, no. I think he, I think he kept. So here's what I think. So in the hospital, he said his exact words. I'll give you the exact quote. This is what he said because there was a kind of a misunderstanding, and it it took me a while to figure this out. The way Joe says it is like, yeah, he was talking about burying the money in a bucket, and he couldn't find the bucket, and we assume that he meant he never found a bucket. His actual quote, and Antos was in the room with him, and. He was kind of out of it. He was drugged up and he's just talking. He says, I buried $178,000 in a bucket and I couldn't find the bucket. Actually, the the exact quote is, I couldn't find the goddamn bucket. So past tense, couldn't. (laughs) I think he clearly did find the bucket. I think he clearly found the money. Uh, I think the money that he put in the, the paper bag was the stuff that was damaged. He took the rest with him. Uh, There is more to the story. Uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there right now. I do believe though, when they returned back home, he had so let's see, twenty two thousand minus another uh, six. Yeah, so he's got uh, uh, what's that work out to be? You know, hundred and seventy something G's in the house, just cold hard cash sitting somewhere in that house. I have wanted to go in there and, and uh, look because I have a hypothesis that. His office was upstairs in the spare bedroom, and I have a hypothesis that the um, attic access was in his closet, and perhaps that's where he was um, keeping it. Uh, there was also a cold storage uh, down in the basement. I've never been in the house. I've wanted to go in there. I once actually wrote the tenants that are in there, and they like didn't want anything to do with me. So I haven't. <laughs> but I haven't. Uh, I yeah, I haven't. Uh, I haven't tried again. There's been like. The, the, that switched over a few times since then, but uh, sorry, I feel like I'm not I'm not being very linear. I'm being like Joe. I'm jumping around too much. Uh, she is the least linear thinking person I have ever come across. It's yeah, it's, it's unreal. You have no idea that this this should not. What I know right now, if this were 20 years ago, I could I could literally go to the FBI and say, okay, here's what I know. I'm going to give you exact stuff, says exact details. I want you to take these exact. De- and in an hour, you'll have this solved. If it's not an hour, it'll be you know, two, three days at the most. Like you can have this solved that fast and your picture will be all over you know, the office and everyone will think you're the hero. Sadly though, they've closed the case. 20 years has gone by. Uh, there's a lot of question marks. I don't, there's, there's some stuff I don't know. Why are, why are you more confident 20 years ago than you are now? Yeah, that's, <laughs> things can happen. Things can happen. You might know where something was 20 years ago, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's there now. So, uh, but, and I, I get that to an extent. I, I tell people <laughs> when they ask me like, who was DB Cooper? Uh, I'll say I'm, I'm more unsure now mm-hmm. than I was when I started, you know, started yeah. looking into who DB Cooper was. So just so we know, and uh, this will make me sound like an ass, but I mean, I'm hundred percent confident. I would bet my last heartbeat. And that's, uh, there's, there's, there's reasons for that. Um, you know, one 
from one perspective, you might say, well, you've been in it so long that you just you convinced yourself and it's impossible. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. What do you, if you think about a theory, okay, so, so let's talk about uh, a theory. What, how do you classify, no, I don't necessarily mean a D.B. Cooper theory, I mean a theory in general. How do you tell a good theory from a bad theory? Or, or, or say you have two theories. How do you decide which theory is better than the other theory? Research and proof. Okay, so 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 proof. How do you how do you how do you define proof? Well, I guess it depends what theories you're talking about. Well, well, you uh, just have like, to like physics or you know theory popular theories that, that I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm trying to. Uh, one thing you got to know about me is I will ask a lot of questions. Uh, I learned that from uh, my psychology professor Elizabeth Loftus. She would always she would always ask before she'd tell. That's pretty funny. She'd get you to commit, get you to commit before she'd give it. To you. <laughs> so I, 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 I do that. So I, I'm not trying to be annoying or anything. I just, I'm trying to get you to think about before I say it. You know, how do you know a, a good theory from a bad theory, just in general? Well, I mean, when it comes to uh, D.B. Cooper, it's what I know, really. Okay. So, so you're taking information of, you know, observations, right? Observations. What you know is observations, things that you can observe in the record and say, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Right. That's how, that's how all theories work. It's like, okay, why does the moon orbit, you know, the earth, right? So you got these observations and you have to try to come up with an explanation. Why, why does this work? And, uh, you know, there was people who, who had this uh, Earth-centric uh, view of the, of the universe, you know. And Copernicus is looking and saying, uh, guys, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, you know, God wouldn't have set it up any other way. Well, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> and that guy waited until he was literally on his deathbed before he let that out. Um, I mean, there's something to that. But um, a good theory is one that not only can explain what you're seeing, but then makes predictions. So D.B. Cooper is in the past. So you don't have predictions, you have retrodictions, things that you can look for and find. And I have come to view uh, the way my interaction is with this case as very theoretical like that. I don't use the word theory, I use model because a theory is a model and the word theory is just tossed out um, casually so much, uh, you know, colloquially, so that uh, the, the true meaning of it is, is uh, it's like a functioning model of how to, how to see and perceive what you what you're looking at. hence why i'm looking at like how did the money get there did the bucket uh, did the bucket really get dislodged in a flood it doesn't make sense so i'm like you know it's not jiving so that's where the theory starts and now i've got motive the money's already damaged so means he's on the river on uh, september the 2nd 1979 you know opportunity he's right there motive means opportunities all there means you know the paper bag it's all there right i can give you motive means and opportunity that's pretty good that's more than I don't know. Name me another suspect that can give you motive, means, and opportunity for money being on the river. I don't know. I, I don't believe there is one. Yeah. So, so, so that's one reason why I think I was really, really hooked to this particular suspect from the get-go. Is because Joe's trying to tell me that it's coincidental, and I'm, I'm listening to the stories, and I'm like trying to piece this together. And I'm thinking, huh? You know, here I am. I'm coming up with motive, means, and opportunity, and I don't know, and that's a coincidence too. So you got the facial recognition, you got the confession, you got the, and then you got this trip, you got the, I don't know if this is really coincidence. It's going to be really tough. It's like when they came out with the DNA stuff. I'm like, oh man, I guess, I guess it was just one of those flukes. I got it wrong, you know? And then I started thinking about it. Well, did 
did did we get it wrong? Because um, you need to have two things. You need to know for sure you've got D.B. Cooper's DNA. Then you need to know for sure you've got the suspect's DNA. And if you're not sure about either or or both of those, your results aren't really uh, iron as ironclad as they sound in the newspaper. Yeah, I, right? I mean, I don't even know the DNA that they talk about. You know, they say Dwayne and LD were the only two um, compared, but do they have a DNA sample? Right. It seems like they don't. Right, right. Now, I can tell you that they took several of Dwayne's items. Some of the items had been uh, tainted uh, or used by other people. But because they took several items, they were pretty convinced that they actually had his profile. And I have a lot of those items uh, still with me. And I've seen, like, the, the wrappings and stuff. You know, one of them is, like, his mouthpiece and his uh, bridge. And, you know, he's got a pair of, like, gloves and... Um, wristwatch. Now, of course, the wristwatch. Oh boy, she's got the she's got his wristwatch, and I've worn it. She's worn it. It's like you know we're tainting the <laughs> tainting the, the evidence, so to speak. But we don't know if we have DB Cooper's DNA, and uh, I'll even say that's true now. Uh, even after the, I don't know what you know about the. You, you're going to know more about. Uh, Ulysses discovery there that they televised than I than I'm gonna know. Well, Ulysses and and Tom K's discovery was they found DNA on the tie. The DNA belonged to Tom K. That was one of my hypotheses. Was uh, 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 I was actually thinking about that. I was gonna ask you exactly that. I was washing the dishes. I'm like, well, you need to check if it's Tom K's DNA. He's the obvious guy to check. That's real sad. That's real sad to me. But it's it's uh, it, it it's, is real sad. It's I predictable. Remember, uh, Eric actually, I'm. He probably won't mind me saying this, but he called me when they found DNA on the tie. And he was like, dude, we've got it. We've got D.B. Cooper's DNA. This is going to be great. You can't say anything until the show comes out, but we got it. Mm -hmm. And then, so for a year, I thought, okay, we've got D.B. Cooper's DNA. This is going to be case closed at some point. It's going to be great. Then the show comes out and Tom K posts, hey, um, the don't get too excited about the DNA from the show. It's it's mine. It was a mistake. And then they yeah. left it in the show because, you know, yeah, it's exciting. It's, it's a sensational. I can tell you I got about three phone calls. And I'm and I'm the guy that's like quiet. No one knows who I am. I got like I, I was getting phone calls about that. And when I saw that I thought, oh man, at first I thought, wow, I'm gonna bump the chances of this thing getting solved up to fifty percent. And we can figure this out real quick. I could just call them up and ask them, listen, take a look at your profile. Is there PKD uh, gene mutations in it or not? If there is, we're gold. If not, well, yeah, you got someone else's DNA. Now I know that's uh, it's kind <laughs> of a that's one of those like logical uh, things that people you know hiss at me about. But uh, I, I truly believe uh, that was his tie. Tom K has proven that to me. Uh, and by the way, uh, uh, him and I have never spoken. Uh, my first video on YouTube was a message to him, uh, trying to give him some encouragement. I had, I had high hopes for him. Um, and I didn't want him to get kind of beat up by all the people who have all their little pet theories and stuff. The way I felt, I, I felt like that. I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I, I would assume he saw the message I posted on the DZ. <clears throat> but well, the uh, DZ got so nasty. <laughs> yeah, I, and it's such a wild place. It, I never posted on on the DZ. I just looked because I didn't have a theory or anything myself. I was just really fascinated by it, and I remember checking it out like every few weeks. And you know, it'd be forty five new pages, 
Um, and people posting in the middle of the night and doxing each other before that was a word. <laughs> it was yeah, uh, yeah. a wild place. And, and Joe and, and Robert really, really uh, were relentless would be the word. Yeah. And it's so silly. Uh, it's so silly for, um, it's oh God, I try to tell her just, just go stop doing this, Joe, stop doing this. Boy. Anyway, anyway, so, uh, there were, uh, it turns out there were about four different ways to solve this. And if you were to ask me five years ago, I would have said, there's no way to solve it. You know, the fourth way would have been that DNA on the tie. So if, if that's, if that's out, uh, there's really one bullet left and, uh, it is a massive long shot. <laughs> that's all I gotta say. It's a massive long shot. But like I said, if it was 20 years ago, I'd have a lot of confidence. I'd have a lot of confidence. Um, and I, I have, I have something that I could have actually like actionable intelligence. You know, Joe would complain to the, Joe would complain to the FBI. I've got recordings of the, of, uh, I've got recordings of all her conversations with uh, the agents and stuff. She recorded everything. Um, and they were willing, they were li- willing to listen, but she's like, can you investigate? Well, investigate what? What am I supposed to investigate? You got to give me something to investigate. You know, investigate this guy. You know, well, what's that look like? You got to give me something. What do you want me to search your house? What do you want me to do? And she had this theory. She had this theory for the longest time that his money, she thought it was suspicious. This is just show you that she would hold uh, beliefs that were opposing and not even like recognize it. She believed that whoever purchased the, the, the guy that purchased the van after he died somehow came into a bunch of money and was going on this big spending spree. So she, she was under the impression that uh, Dwayne had loot of some sort in the hidden in the van. And it's funny because I, I felt like I could, uh, so when I said it, there's a theory, um, and I, I called it a model. My models basically follow the money from point A to point B to point C to point D to point E, right? So I'm trying to trace his steps and look at his behavior, and it all starts to make sense. Well, at the end of this trail, it's like, what the hell happened to the money? Where's the money? There should be, uh, you're telling me he spent it all? Where did he spend it all? So I didn't know. I didn't know. It was like this black hole. And I kind of didn't have anywhere to go with that. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just take Joe's word for it. Big mistake. But, but it's a good mistake in the sense that I explored it. I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to play poker. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to semi-bluff this guy. I'm going to send him a letter. I'm going to say, look, I know where the money was in the, in the van. I know where, where in the van it was. I know, I know where it was at certain points of time. And I know where it was in the van. You know, listen, you bought it fair and square. It's yours. Don't feel guilty. Right. Um, he called me five minutes after he got that. And this is interesting. I'll always remember this day. It's the day I found out I was going to be a parent and I'm sitting there, uh, <clears throat> I'm sitting there reading, uh, reading an essay by, uh, uh Wikipedia founder, um, Larry Sanger. He's talking about teaching his kids to read. And I'm like trying to cue myself up on how I'm going to raise my kids. And uh, I get this phone call and we start talking. And sadly, I did not record the call because I really wish I did. I tried so many ways to trap that guy, to give him so many outs and none of it was working. None of it was working. And I remember just hanging up the phone and just thinking, you know, there's a, there's a point in time when a poker player might be in the middle of a hand and you got to ask yourself, is this guy even capable of pulling a bluff like that? Like, is he capable of lying that well? No. So I said, no, no, Joe's wrong. I talked to this guy, I talked to the guy that bought the van. He didn't find money in the van. I don't know what happened to the money. Don't know what happened to the money. <laughs> 
So uh, that was that was like the last day. I said, "All right, that's it. I'm not. Uh, that's it." And I tried to go out and help Joe. I'm like Joe, listen, I'm going to be a parent here in a few months. If you want me to come out, now's the time. No, no, I'm not going to be alive that much longer. You know, I got this. I got that ailment. Whatever. Okay, Joe. Whatever. I I I've got to be done. I got to be done with this. So, I uh, I officially um, kind of broke off my my uh, time with the whole D.B. Cooper thing, and I was uh, moving on to a new chapter in my life. Did that dude ever find anything in the van? Yes. So he found, uh, he did find uh, Dwayne's secret wallet. Uh, now, let's talk about how that might have happened. Um, the driver, the driver uh, uh, captain chair, the uh, seat, the driver's seat was uh, bloodstained from driving to and from, you know, places. And so he took that out and he put one of the seats from the back into the front. And uh, Joe's hypothesis is that it was in, somehow in the seat, hidden hidden in the seat, because she, she searched and searched and searched and never found anything. And he finds this wallet and tells her, um, I found this wallet. It's got some IDs in it. When she shows up at his house, or he showed up at her house, I can't remember which, and she says, you know, what's in it? He says, I don't know, I didn't look. So she now suspicious. Well, you told me on the phone that he's got these IDs in there. And she's like, I have his IDs. I don't know what you're talking about. And now you're telling me that. Uh, so so this she was suspicious of this guy, you know, right off the top. Um, <clears throat> unjustly, it turns out, gets the uh, the fake ID with a, or gets his wallet with all these IDs in it. A span of time, one of the things she finds is uh, a receipt, a receipt for a safety deposit box. Gosh, Dwayne is such a mysterious guy. Oh, dude. Yeah, he's... Uh, <laughs> My wife's not going to find any mysterious stuff or receipts for her safety deposit boxes, but I also never committed any heists. So the reason I have it on the computer so you can see it, you can see that it really does exist. You can vouch for me. So she finds this receipt here from the Citizens and People's National Bank of Pensacola for safety deposit box number 14. And uh, this was held at... He had a... He had his own account when he had his own uh, shop selling antiques and stuff. He had like a, a business account. So he had like a separate separate deal. Uh, it's under his name, Dwayne Weber. And she's got the key taped to the will. So she goes in and she shows them the will. And she says, my husband has a safety deposit box here. Here's the receipt. Uh, it's number 14. And they said, well, let's take a look. Oh, you're not on the account. Sorry, you can't go back there. Like, okay, uh, so then what do we do? So, all right, well, I'm going to take the key back there and I'll empty the contents. I'll empty the contents for you and bring them to you. So they go back into the vault, open his box. This is what aggressive editing does for you because this whole interesting part of the story is left out of the documentary. So she comes back and says, all right, here we go. Here is what... No, I have the original uh, at my house, but this is uh, several ones. So here you go. She's like, okay. There's a magazine, Soldier of Fortune, December 1994 issue. He died in uh, March of 1995. So uh, depending on when this was in the newsstand, you know, I don't know, three, four months before he died. Why the hell would you put this in a safety deposit box? That's the big question. Why would you put a random magazine in your safety deposit box as if it's this special thing, right? So... That first time I was out there uh, at Joe's house, I see the magazine in one of her cell. What the heck is the story on this magazine? She says, ah, I don't know, Tim. 
open it up and you can tell me what you think. So you can open it up and tell me what you think. I don't even know what I'm looking for. Yeah, that's just it. What are you looking for? So when she saw it, she doesn't know what she's looking for. When I saw it, I know exactly what I'm looking for. So the man who held the secret. So, so here's the deal. So you open this, you open this to the second page and there is a picture of a free, um, a guy in uh, free fall and he has a duffel bag between his legs. Uh, the same way it is theorized that D.B. Cooper uh, jumped out of the back of the plane. And then, of course, uh, Joe being Joe, she later, uh, she put this magazine aside and just was, you know, had no way of knowing what it was. She put it amongst his things and just left it at that. And later, after uh, some other events that led her to call the FBI and go on her her, her quest of her own, she looked back at this magazine and then saw this picture and wondered if he was somehow in the actual article, which I think is just bogus. That's Joe being Joe. She likes to, uh, like I said, everything is D.B. Cooper. So she'd look at this picture and say, oh, there's this guy down here with a pipe in his mouth. That must be him. No, it's not him. Uh, but he clearly saw something in this magazine that prompted him to buy it. And then not only buy it, but to bring it to his personal safety deposit box, put it in there and lock and key. Well, why? Uh, my hypothesis is just, he's just sending you a message. So if, uh, no one was there in the room with them when he confessed. And uh, in my book, this is just telling me, this is a message to me. Uh, I really did confess. Uh, he's saying that's, you know, in, in a roundabout way, that's me, even though that's not him. But yeah, that's, that's me. I got the you know money between my legs, whatever. So that's so weird that yeah. the only thing in his safety deposit box was Soldier of Fortune yeah, magazine. Soldier, Soldier of Fortune magazine, uh, December 1994, if anyone's curious of uh, looking at it yourself. All right, so time goes by, time goes by, and she decides, all right, I'm ready to start dating. So she she answers uh, some ads, puts out an ad, whatever what the case may be, and uh, she meets this guy named Lee Monday, and uh, he was a little uh, heavyset. Uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, otherwise dressed nice. And he was a very fine fellow, but she just, yeah, he was heavy set. She didn't really like him that way. She didn't have the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the physical attraction, so to speak. And so she was under the impression that uh, she had been reading this uh, book, um, Surviving Widowhood, I believe. I have the book at home. Um, <clears throat> she was reading this book, and it was talking about how do you know if you're over your uh, – uh, your spouse, okay, because it's about, right. It's about it's about moving on from your life after your spouse has died, and and it's like, well, if you can't stop talking about them, you're you're not you're not ready to move on. So she took that and said, all right, uh, I'm gonna if I don't like him, I'm gonna start talking about my husband, and he'll get the idea that I'm not ready to move on. So that was kind of her thinking. So she starts telling him about a uh, trip to Seattle, the confession, the I'm um, Dan Cooper. At some point in the conversation. As she's uh, between dinner and dessert, he's uh, he says, "Did you ever think that he was DB Cooper?" And what do you mean? And she hadn't heard that she hadn't heard that name in a long while, so she wasn't quite sure what he was talking about. And um, he's like, "Yeah, he hijacked this plane, blah blah blah." Okay. And she was in the middle of getting a real estate license, so she was studying up for that and just kind of shelved shelved that whole thing. She shelved it. Took the test, did well on the test. As soon as she was done with the test, she calls him up. Okay, what was the name again? D.B. Cooper. Oh, okay, thank you. I'm going to go to the library. So she goes to the library, and she gets uh, Max Gunther's book and starts reading it and gets to, I don't remember the exact page, but 
it's talking about Dan Cooper in the book, right? So mm-hmm. she's like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is totally it. Like, this is it. This is what he was trying to tell me. Now, she went on to uh, uh, believe something about that book that I don't believe, which is that uh, Dwayne somehow, or his wife, had a hand in crafting the story. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. I, I've, tr- I've tried. I've tried to see her point of view, and I, I don't. And for the longest time, uh, I went out there and I looked at the handwriting. Well, I'm going to let you. Uh, I'll let you do a comparison yourself. We will. Um, I'm going to pull up. Pull up here. Okay, I scanned this in yesterday on a page 116 of the book. You have the actual book. Yeah, I have the actual book. Yeah. I thought that was lost. No, there are things that are lost, but the book is not lost. You have the actual book that Joe yeah. found at the library in Florida. Yeah, I've got the book. How did you get the actual book? That's a long story. I was like basically the heir to uh, uh, all of Joe's stuff um, regarding D.B. Cooper. So um, whatever was left, I got. Uh, she's just not in a, a position to uh, use it anymore. Uh, it's, and that's kind of a long story. That that kind of played out about a year ago. I'm I'm really jealous of the fact that you have the actual book. Yeah. Like real jealous of that. All right. So here you are. You, uh, Darren, get to compare. On the left, I've got the scribbling in the book. And on the right, I have more handwriting samples than just some personal checks, but I just had those uh, ready uh, to show you. So I've got some checks that he wrote. And you are welcome to, uh, I mean, if you want to pause this or whatever, you can and, and uh, kind of examine and see what you think. Because I've had an opinion for a long time and I was looking at this yesterday and I'm, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't look that similar to me. I don't know. Some of it is. You know, be honest with yourself. You don't, uh, don't, don't feel like you got to try to uh, please me or, or, or anybody else. Just uh, you know, use your own judgment here. I don't know. I know handwriting analysis isn't exactly the most hard science, but sure. it doesn't it doesn't look identical to me. Right. I, I would if I had to make a bet, I would say different people wrote those. Yeah. And that is what I uh, that's basically where I have been for many, many years. And so that you've got this story about, you know, his, his handwriting in the book. And I've thought, yeah, I'm not. I, I Yeah, I don't think so. Um, the what sells it. What's I'll tell you what sells me on not his handwriting is and all of his handwriting samples that I have, he always writes his A's like this. Whereas here you see an A, and here you see an A, and they are written totally different. Oh, yeah. Um, now, where that changes slightly is when he, in his signature, the A in his signature is, uh, so there's one signature, and then down here, I'll show you another signature. So you can see he, in his signure, he crafts it differently. Uh, more similar to what you see in the book. Yeah, is but that my a, yeah, signature isn't my handwriting. Right, right. Now, what I was looking at this last night, and I thought, okay, Joe, I can see, I do see your point. Number one, the slant is left, left-handed slant. Uh, the way it's the way it's slanted. So it appears to be written by someone left-handed. If you look at this P right here, the peddler's shop was that Dwayne's yeah. antique store. So, so the peddler's shop was was Dwayne's antique store. Yes, and we will be talking about the peddler's shop here in just a minute. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I looked at it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, the the, the slant. Uh, you got the Y coming down now. The Y curves to the left. Here, it's more. Here, it actually curves to the right. Um, but it's 
it's very, it, I can see the similarity. I can, I do see where she was convinced that this was his handwriting. I am less than convinced that this is his handwriting. Um, but you know, to each, to each, I do, I do see the similarity. So, you know, I, I'm not an expert, but I'm not willing to stake my reputation on, on, on the handwriting match in the Max Gunther book. Right. And I mean, it's a library book. Yeah. Any, any number of people had it. The point that she, the point she was trying to say is that, uh, you know, what's the odds that I'm getting this book and his handwriting's in it. I mean, he clearly had read it before, before. And, and it was because of that handwriting that she purposely kept the book and uh, um, never returned it and just paid the fine. All right, so we brought up the peddler's shop. So, um, uh, yeah, so she calls the FBI, and you know, the re- the rest is is kind of known from from there. Uh, let's go back to when he had the peddler's shop. He opened this, I believe, in 1989, and uh, at first, uh, Joe was helping out with the books, and uh, she just it wasn't it wasn't really doing all that great, according to the recordings. I have some of them here. Um, I've got some snippets. She kept an audio diary, and I have those audios. So I have, like I said, there's a... If she kept an audio diary, I bet that is uh, quite lengthy. Uh, well, um, not as lengthy as you think because there was actually tape, and she had to <laughs> buy, buy tape, and, and she would record, record over stuff and lose stuff and what have you, but... Um, about the time when he st- he started to get sick and needed dialysis, um, things really got uh, sketchy, sketchy for her. She was she was really um, he started to scare her. Uh, he seemed to be losing his mind. Like she couldn't understand what was going on. He is on social security. He doesn't get very much money. He's got this peddler shop, and 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 she thinks it's he's trying really hard to. Uh, be a provider, but he's, he's not a provider and she's running the books. The books are in the red. A lot of the stuff is in her name. And that goes back to uh, an incident that happened with a wife before her, the wife before her got a judgment on him and he filed for bankruptcy to avoid whatever obligation. And I've, and I've reached out to the family and tried to ask about that. And, uh, I haven't, I've yet to get a response on, uh, I'm sure they would be quite uh, insightful if they would talk to me, but, um, not everyone wants to talk and, and anyone who ever tried to talk to the ex-wife got uh, berated on the phone. So we don't really know what the judgment was for. Uh, but I do know he went bankrupt purposely to avoid paying her money. So because of that, uh, the items that they owned were in her uh, name. So she didn't have to be part of that. So, so they still, that's how they he bought the he bought the van and everything. The van was in her name, etc. Seems like a pretty standard move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if if it was a dick move or not because I don't know if he if he really screwed over his ex wife or what the deal is. Um, I don't I don't know. But I will tell you if you listen to the audio diaries from back then, uh, it's 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 pretty interesting. Like there's a sequence of events um, that takes place. He, he goes on a spending spree, and she's freaked out about that. He's seeing a psychologist, uh, which is almost acting like a marriage counselor at one point. And he's telling the marriage counselor, or psychologist, I should say, that's what he was, uh, 
she's all worried about this and it's nothing to be worried about. I've got everything handled. She's like, how, how do you have everything handled? You're going, you're, this is nuts. Anyway, so he's telling people, here's a, here's a clip. I know that he is trying to do the best he can to pull his end to making a living. I know that it has to be humiliating for a man to know that his wife is having to support him. Although he ought to know that I couldn't have done without what he has done with our income this year. And I know that he realizes that there's not much life insurance. And I know he's saying and telling other people that he wants to make sure I'm set for life. That I'll have something to take care of me when he's gone. He would just take time to smell the roses, for God's sake, and be happy. Everything else will take care of itself. So, I don't know if you could make out what she said, but she said he's, he was telling people that uh, she was going to be set for life mm-hmm. and didn't have to worry about anything. And she, this does make no sense to her. She's like, he, he has uh, life insurance, but it's not that much money. You know, a few th- like 10000 or something. Like, what are you talking about? Um, what is he talking about? That's a good question. So that's a question I'd pose to the audience. What is he talking about here? And I will keep going. Okay, so here's where... She's talking about how she was running the shop and it wasn't making money. And then um, he kicks her out of the shop. She wasn't allowed back in the shop. He didn't want her anywhere near the shop. Next thing you know, he's he's posting, the, he's saying that his, his, his shop is making all this money. And she is freaked out because the shop is in her name and she feels like he's about to blow up financially and she's on the hook. And she's trying to have conversations with him about this, and he's just getting frustrated about it. Come on, seriously, uh, you have nothing to worry about. And I will, I will, I will share more. Hold on, we'll keep going. Okay, listen to listen to this uh, audio uh, recording here. Tuesday night, nine twenty-five. I'm leaving the shop now. Uh, I went by to see how he had his teeth removed and. I was feeling. Everything went pleasant. He mentioned the books on the shop and said that he had everything done. It showed a $2,700 profit. I know for a fact there was not a $2,700 profit on those shops with the way the books, the point that I left them. In fact, it was in the red, not in, not positive. He immediately became hostile saying that he had the locks changed after that incident with the knife when, in fact, I'm sure they were changed prior to that. I don't know what to do at this point. I have a right to see those books. I have a right to know what's going on. And it looks like he's not leaving me too many alternatives but to do what has to be done. I love him, but I don't know any other way to handle this. He threatened to blow me away. Told me to get the hell out. I looks like I'm going to have to take court order and shut him down. 
not leaving any alternative. Anyway, you get the idea. He doesn't sound like uh, a great husband. Well, this was this was also a, a very tough time um, that they were going through. So he had just started the dialysis. There, all this stuff is happening. Um, if you believe like me that there's actually something going on here and it is related to D.B. Cooper, uh, he has his motivations and he can't share them with his wife. And um, it's not like he can say, listen, uh, <laughs> I got plenty of money. You don't need to worry about it. Uh, he's trying to tell her that, but not so many words. Um, meanwhile, she's just freaking out. If you know Joe, this is not a surprise that she would freak out. Uh, all right. Now that, I think, Tuesday, that's like, yeah, things are about to get really, really interesting in the Weber household. He wanted to see his sister, I think, because uh, he was on dialysis, didn't know how much time he had left. So she's going to talk about that. How do you tell him his sister doesn't want him there? She's afraid of him. There are things in Dwayne's past that I hesitate to discuss, but then I think perhaps I have to, knowing that all this would be kept confidential. Dwayne spent time in the penitentiary, and I'm not quite sure what for. I really don't know much about his life from the time he was in his 20s until he was in his late 40s. I do know that he can steal and he can lie, and that I know for a fact I've seen him do it. When I talked to his sister, she said that she loved him dearly, but she did not want him to come out there alone. It was all right if we came together, but that she was afraid of him, but she would not tell me what she was afraid of. It's some kind of deep, dark secret that family has hidden. I have never met any member of his family except to talk to his sister on the telephone. I know that his first wife supposedly died in an automobile accident and that there was a nine-year-old child. His sister has denied that there was a wife killed in an automobile accident or that there was ever a child. These are a lot of deep, dark secrets that he has lived with all of his life and no one really knows but him. As long as they've never interfered with our life, I haven't dug into them. But these are things that Dr. Haney cannot evaluate if he does not know so the point of playing the, the these clips is just to give you give you a little bit of a sense of kind of um the reality at the time and this is like uh, real time this is before the confession this is well before any of that she's just trying to understand what's going on it's, i think it's interesting that she she knew he had been in the penitentiary of course there was the dream uh, back when they lived in littleton uh which you know, we can talk about that too yeah, I love that he is this mysterious figure while he's alive. Yeah. I mean, it's not he's dead. We'll never find out. Right, right. No, she's sleeping in the same bed as this guy. Yeah. I don't know anything that happened between 20 and 40. Yeah. Like, that's that's insane. Yeah. And and he's given her this line about the, the wife dying in a car wreck. I, I don't know whatever happened to Daisy Schulter. I don't I don't think I, I don't know that much about it myself. But I'm pretty sure it sounds like that was a a line that he a fib. Well, you can't reach out and contact her if you think she's dead. True. I mean, he's gosh, man. Uh, trigger warning: This is going to get colorful. Okay. All righty. All right. This is going to get colorful. Uh, she has called Dwayne on the phone. 
um, to talk to him and I'm trying to, trying to cue you up for, for what's going on. Okay. So she wants to talk to him about, uh, all this financial, um, she feels like she's out on a financial limb. Okay. And that he's being irresponsible and, uh, she really feels exposed. He's getting really frustrated hearing about this. And what you're about to hear is Dwayne Weber's own voice for the first time. So, so uh, uh, an interesting way to introduce the voice of Dwayne Weber. You know, I went years with never hear, never hearing that voice, and uh, uh, the audience uh, they uh, they get it they get it you know in the first hour or whatever. So uh, that's that's uh, that's anyway. Uh, so you can see kind of what's going on though here in these events of 1990 when he's on his dialysis, and it's about to escalate into a very peculiar occurrence, which led to these fake IDs uh, that she found years later. Why would, why did she record that? Uh, so she was worried. She was worried that if something happened to her, she wanted, um, she wanted a record of kind of what was happening. Also, I, uh, I believe the psychologist was encouraging them to record their, their feelings and thoughts on tape. She gave him a stack of tapes and a recorder. And, uh, I only have heard, I don't know if he purposely recorded them or if they were unintentional or, or what the story was on these recordings, but He's not talking into the recorder. He's just living his life. So he's driving down the street and uh, um, uh, Paula Abdul's uh, The Way That You Love Me comes on the radio. And it's <laughs> like, okay. You know, it's kind of funny. Yeah. She's like, okay, what's he thinking right now? I'm just like sitting there listening to, you know, he's driving down the road. What's in his mind? You know, what's going on? Trying to, there's another one where he's, turns on the news station and Peter Jennings is on there and I can figure out the exact date that it was recorded because of the news events that are being, re- being uh, revealed. But, uh, there's no tapes of him. Uh, she's definitely like encouraging on, on one cassette to, to, uh, speak his feelings or whatever. I think they weren't being encouraged by the psychologist to do that. Um, and I think that was a big reason she was doing that. It was just to kind of process. And then she did, at an occasion, uh, these recordings or whatever, she did share them with the psychologist uh, at some point so that someone else would, would, have a, would have a record. 
I, I just find that interesting. I mean, when my wife and I have spats on the telephone, neither of us are recording it. Right. You're not normally recording your spouse, but she was, he had accused her of, uh, of smashing the shop and she felt like that was unjust. And so she's trying to get him on tape to admit that she didn't do that. She, they, they were on the tape talking about whether or not they're going to stay married. So this was clearly, and he's, he, at this time he's sleeping in his trailer. He has a trailer. Uh, I have a picture of it somewhere, but, um, uh, and he had that trailer parked outside his shop and he would just, that's kind of what he was doing. Um, so they were sort of not quite separated, but you can clearly tell there's a, a dynamic going on here. And I, I don't, I don't know what exactly all the reasons behind it. If it was just, Hey, I've got all this money and I'm just going to go live my life, live the dream, you know, be in the trailer and just do my thing. Or if there was more to it, you heard in that, um, exchange there where he said, I can't tell you, I can't tell you nothing. Uh, I, th- I think that had more meaning than, <laughs> I think that had uh, more meaning to it. All right. So yeah, it's definitely not all roses for them. Right now on March the 8th, 1990, he goes into the DMV and he, uh, obtains a driver's license, uh, for John Collins. Now he does this fraudulently it's very suspicious. The clerk, uh, anyway, I, I'll let I'll let Joe speak for herself here. Friday, midnight till twelve. I'm just leaving Dr. Haney's office after having signed releases. Yesterday evening, just before dark, highway patrol knocked on my door, showed me, asked me who I was showed me a picture of a man and asked me if I knew who that man was. I did not. I said, tell him who he was at first. What do you want him for? And they explained to me that he had tried to obtain a driver's license under the name of John Claudia Collins. And that, he told them he was 48 years old and the kidney dialysis made him look older. He... Upon leaving, they took his tag number because it sounded very suspicious. They checked the tag number, finding the car registered to Josephine Collins Weber. They thought it might be my father. I explained to him, no, it's my husband, and that he was very ill and under the care of a psychologist. I had the patrolman call the psychologist because they were looking for him on felony charges. the trooper assured me that after talking to the psychologist, there would be no charges provided, no harm had been done to anyone. So, that's uh, again, you're getting you're getting a snapshot in real time, which is, I mean, this is just amazing. She kept uh, such great records. Uh, I can't tell you, it's 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 um, it's enlightening. Because you hear all these stories and you're wondering how, how good is your memory? Well, this is like this is as good as it is. So according to the exchange there, he goes into a DMV and fa- and basically fails to get a driver's license. He actually got a li- driver's license that day, and uh, apparently had returned to his shop. They show up at her door. Um, her maiden name is Collins, so um, hence hence the connection there. Uh, it's funny he's he's trying to get an ID under the name Collins, so. You would think that once the DMV guy looked it up, he would think, all right, well, it checks out. It's fine. But for whatever reason, it was fishy and called the called the highway patrol. 
he had got a different ID somewhere else and succeeded. She goes to go see him at a shop. She drives all the way over there and is trying to warn him, basically, that the cops showed up. Well, I don't know if the cops followed her there or if they were already on their way on their own accord or what. But within minutes of her walking in that front door, here comes the cops. And he gets he gets arrested. His uh, his 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 gun and holster uh, taken from him <laughs> and he's hauled off and he's uh, put into jail. What is he arrested for? Is having a fake ID? A well, yeah, trying to, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, identity theft of some sort. I don't know. Even back then it wasn't as much of a thing, but uh, uh, he got bailed out, not bailed out financially. He got bailed out in a, in a general sense from that, that psychologist who was like, yeah, listen, he just started dialysis. These people do crazy stuff. You know, they they like they, they uh, minimized it, right? Yeah, like uh, rationalized it away. When the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want your audience to think of why does he need the ID? Why does a guy who is in his sixties need a fake ID? Who is potentially staring down the barrel of the end of his life? Right. Right. Exactly. So why? Yeah. Why? 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 Start doing a little bit of uh, this is. You know, the audience is getting way more information than I had. All I knew is like he got arrested for this, uh, this ID and I'm like, okay, uh, what's that have to do with anything? It's uh, Joe will throw out so many things. You know, like, what's that have to do with anything? And I just thought about it and I'm like, okay, uh, well, why, why do you need a fake ID? You know, it's not like you're going to the bar and they're going to ID, you know, you're 65 or whatever he was at the time. Ask yourself why he needs the ID. Get yourself, uh, get yourself thinking. I know why he needed the ID, by the way, but I'm just. Uh, I I have no idea why he would need. Yeah, just that pon- ID. Pon- ponder it to yourself. Now, uh, she calls her credit card company and finds out he's charged a bunch of money. This morning, upon getting up, for some reason, I felt I should call my credit card. He had asked for it for identification purposes only. This is Friday morning. March the 9th. I come to find out that within a three-day day period of time, he has charged over $3,200 to my credit card. This is a terror, terrifying thing. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle it. I'm scared. I'm personally on my way to obtain my credit card back from him. Also the title to the trailer, if he will be so kind as to hand that to me. Uh, I would not be able to get the 3200 out of it. He may even have already forged my name on that and used that for security. But somewhere between now and the time he got out of the hospital, $9,000 has disappeared between his own personal savings account and what he has put on my charge card. I am terrified to approach him because he does have a 38 snub nose gun in his possession, of which he has threatened at times to blow me away. I just really don't know what to do, and I am scared. <laughs> well, anyway, so. Uh, she never really told me about his uh, threats to blow her away, so that's uh, something new to me. But uh, I was, doesn't seem out of character. <laughs> uh, well, 
he, as far as I know, he was never really violent. Uh, there was an there was a story that happened here in Greeley, um, where he uh, feigned feigned uh, uh, maybe a violent streak. And uh, anyway, I'll get back to that later. All right, so she's going to call him up from jail here, and he he totally blames her for going for being in jail. Well, I mean, how can I, you know, in other words, I take and leave my car. 
wasn't very happy no no he's a grumpy guy well i i'm i feel bad because i we're we're taking a slice of time when he was not at his best and we're presenting it and it's very easy for people to forget that he, he did have his uh he does have his good side yeah he clearly had a bad side i mean he spent a lot of years in prison okay yeah i would be grumpy yeah. too if i um had kidney failure and i was in jail yeah, well, and he he thinks the wife is. Uh, meanwhile, she's off worrying about money, and he's oh gosh. So one name that was mentioned here is Jim Stalling, who uh, had a shop across the street from his. And one day around this time, uh, maybe a little bit after, uh, he went over to visit Dwayne and uh, walks in and uh, whoa, what do we got here? Dwayne's got stacks of cash. It's like okay, I've seen a lot of cash before. He's got at least minimum fifty G's on the table just counting it out what the hell are you doing it's about the time when uh, him and jim went to i believe it was tallahassee and uh Dwayne went missing uh whole saturday he says uh they were selling stuff you know at a, at a at a what do you call it like sort of like a flea market kind of deal or whatever there's like a, a trade show or something and he has jim take over his table for the whole day and uh, just disappears and then after that that's when he walks in and He's got the he's got the fifty G's uh, on the table, and uh, yeah, what's 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 going on there? So you see him going on a spending spree. I've I've now cataloged that actually was happening. Uh, you can hear it for yourself. Um, he may be fudging the books, um, and it culminates with him being uh, arrested for trying to obtain this false ID, which of course we know he succeeded in doing because we still have it. Uh, it was shown in the documentary by John Dower. So uh, it definitely exists. I have it at my house. So anyway, <laughs> why did he need the, why did he, why, why, why all this? Why all this? What is happening? And does this have anything whatsoever to do with D.B. Cooper? And I wouldn't be posing it if it didn't. But when I'm first presented with this, I did not know that. I'm just trying to like, you know, I don't know. It's just one more weird thing. Along with weird things. Today's the 13th, as I said, we were recording. And uh, immediately after that money was found on the river, uh, some interesting things start happening at the Weber household. Uh, he starts to talk about relocating. I want to relocate. Uh, and this ends with him quitting his job and moving. Except for when he moved, Joe and, his, and the stepdaughter stayed here in town at the house paying rent. They stayed until she finished high school. It was her senior year of high school. So they didn't want to move mid-year. He went, God only knows where. He would call occasionally, I'm in Alabama or I'm in Georgia or wherever it was he was, he was at. And he didn't get employed. That was, uh, so his, his last official day was like April something of uh, 1980. But I will show you here where within, within 10 days he's talking about moving. So eight days after eight days after that money find is in the paper, we get this memo. Okay, and you can see the date, right? You can tell your audience it's uh, February twenty first, nineteen eighty. Eight days after, and 
he's summarizing a conversation he had about relocation. He wants to relocate out of uh, Fort Collins. The funny thing about Fort Collins is he made 40 G's that year. 40 G's he grossed. Um, now, he was very aggressive in his uh, tax write-offs, but 40 G's in 1979, 1980. Yeah, it was a 79 return. It's uh, higher than the norm. Yeah. It's a great wage. So, so why are yeah why why is this guy uh, all of a sudden leaving? And uh, not to necessarily say that the money find is causing him to leave, but again, it's one of those like timely coincidences where I'm sitting there. All right, is this related or uh, it's a logical fallacy to think you know A happens and then B happens, so therefore A causes B. But but is there is there something there? I don't know. And it took me years years to figure this one out. So. I'm only posing the question. I'm not anticipating an answer from anybody, but you can think about it. <laughs> you can think about it. Um, I will say how I was able to kind of, I had to put myself in his shoes, uh, assume that he's D.B. Cooper. And and when it hit me, I was actually uh, driving up this way, and I thought, you know, I could go over to that house, and uh, what would I do if I went over to that house? I would... Would I knock on the door? What would I say? You know, and I started just thinking about it. And I, uh, I started thinking, well, okay, what if I was Dwayne and I was living there? What's, what's life like? And I just started to, I just started to um, play with that a little bit. Another one of those uh, thought experiments, so to speak. And then all of a sudden it hit me. I think I know why he moved all of a sudden. Maybe your, maybe your listener might have a different, uh, you know, they might come up with something different than I came up with. So I don't want to give you what I believe to be the answer. It is quite an incredible coincidence. February of 1980. Yeah. I got to move. Yeah. All of a sudden he's wanting to move. You know, why, why uh, I've heard people say, well, that just makes it look suspicious. Well, yeah. If you're looking at it in hindsight under a microscope. And like I said, it, uh, I feel like it took me years to, to figure out what the hell his motivation was there because it didn't make sense. But, um, so in other words, it's not so, it's not so obvious. There's some other th- incidents that she talks about where she says there was a special on TV and about T.B. Cooper because he was in the news. And they went out on a rare occasion midweek when they, don't, they normally didn't do, and they, and they had this dinner with this uh, couple who owned the, um, the cleaners, you know, like the... Um, um, like a dry cleaner? Yeah, a yeah, they, yeah like, a, like a dry cleaner place. They owned a, a dry cleaner place, and they, they went to a hotel and a bar and had, and had dinner. And... She, she talks about how uh, she talks about how her and the and the, and the other wife were both wanting to um, they were both wanting to watch that special, but for whatever reason they were out at dinner. I tried to look up uh, a special and uh, I tried to find I tried to find I couldn't I couldn't find, and then it dawned on me though that their terrestrial television would have been coming from Cheyenne instead of Denver, so I never really checked Cheyenne, but I I still not convinced I would have been able to find it. I I don't know. I believe her. I believe the story. I just, I wanted to have, I like to have like exact dates. Right. I can't tell. I'm like, listen, the more, the more I can tell you, like, here's the exact day this happened, the better, the better it is. Go ahead and uh, read that to your family life has been good to me, but I seem to be fighting a hidden element somewhere, which I can't possibly guess where. So that is where I'm at presently. Yeah, so he's he's basically saying uh, he. Uh, I interpret that as he he feels like the walls are kind of coming in on him. I mean, I just I feel like that's a psychological tell there. Uh, you know, 
maybe you could say I'm reading into that or not, but uh, uh, this whole this whole letter is about him relocating, why he wants to relocate. And he's just you know, I'm fighting this hidden element, like as, as if something's out to get him. That's where I said uh, in our text exchange the other day, I said, uh, uh, I want to believe that he, he thought maybe karma was coming for him. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, 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 you can't say for sure. Can't say for sure. But I do have his actions. Adra- when he moves and he doesn't have a job, he's paying two rents. Now I have I have where he got hired he got hired in September and then later in December he got hired by Family Life again so there was people who thought maybe he was embezzling or something yeah that throw all those th- dumb theories out uh, he 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 quit on his own accord and left town left his wife and his stepdaughter paying two rents and uh, didn't work for several months uh, it's tough to pull that off well he was able to do it I don't yeah I wonder how. Tim and I have a lot more to talk about, but Russell bullied me into turning this into a two-parter, so stay tuned for part two. It's really good. Questions or comments for Tim? Shoot them our way, and we'll get them to Tim for you. Is there a suspect we haven't covered yet? A theory you think we got wrong? Do you know who D.B. Cooper is? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Tim Collins for driving all the way to my house in a snowstorm to talk about Weber and Cooper. Thank you to Russell Colbert for still doing the show and being my friend, which I know is tough. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.